All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 6th of June, 2017. I do want to remind you that I publish a newsletter, and you can subscribe to that at miningstocks.com. Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks is the name of the letter. Or you can call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I also like to plug my partner, Chen Lin's letter, uh, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? You can subscribe to that by going to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen has a remarkable track record, having turned $5,400 into $2.5 million over a 10-year period, and that was in an unlevered account. Uh, in an IRA account. So he's done done very, very good work, and I think he's worth paying some attention to. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Dynasert Inc., Trimetals Mining, Telson Resources, Klondike, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., and GMV Minerals Corp. With respect to GMV Minerals Corp., I would like to just bring to your attention, uh, last week we spoke to Ian Claussen, the president and CEO of GMV Minerals, and we didn't have time for Ian to bring to your attention a very outstanding and important factor uh, that bodes well for that company's economic future, and that is the metallurgical aspects of its project. Uh, Ian has at his website a chart that shows how well uh, the company's Mexican open pit heap leach project compares with others and this is a key factor that really I think bodes extremely well for GMV Minerals. So you may want to go uh, to the website, it's gmvminerals.com and check out that chart uh, that Ian just simply didn't have time to tell you about last week. Also like to mention that Dynasert, another of our sponsors, has just reported its first quarterly profit. Uh, no, it's not a big number yet, but it is a profit. It's the first quarter that has been actively selling its product uh, and its line of products and its growing line of products, I might act, at a company that I have high hopes for uh, going forward. And we'll be talking to the president of Dynasert, I believe it's in the last week of July. Novo Resources just announced the hiring of Robert Humphreyson. Now, he's a very accomplished mining engineer who's put 
various projects into production as both from undermining uh, underground mining as well as open pit mining. And this really frees up Quinton Henning, whose uh, strengths as a geologist now can be turned loose on what Quinton is clearly very excited about, the nuggets that are found very high-grade nugget field that was found some 350 miles west, uh, 350 kilometers, I should say, west of Beaton's Creek. So Mr. Humphreys will focus on putting Beaton's Creek into production, move that along very rapidly, and he has a skill set more than Quinton, no doubt, to do that. And Quinton can now, uh, Dr. Henning can now spend his time to move uh, this very exciting project forward, uh, the one that's most recently discovered with metal detectors, believe it or not, huge Thousands of ounces of gold nuggets that were found along an ancient shoreline. And um, Novo has has um, staked all the ground down dip from there and as much as it could along strike as well. Very exciting story, I must say. Uh, Quentin was looking for this for Newmont. Um, and Newmont, in fact, is still a, a large shareholder of Novo. So uh, I, I will be talking to Quentin more about it. Would also like to... Another sponsor of ours, Klondike Gold, just mentioned this morning, put out a press release talking about its project, uh, its drilling plans going forward now. What makes this really exciting is for the first time in history, this Klondike Gold field has been viewed and now is known to have the potential for a massive bulk mineable uh, product, uh, project. It's not just the high-grade vein system that, that is there, but it's this bulk mining disseminated gold uh, that really makes this a very exciting story. It's a new game, really, a, a game changer, I would say. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking to Ivan Bebek of RN Resources. Ivan, um, a very exciting company with several projects, and they will be drilling the eyes out of this huge project up in uh, Nunavut, the Committee Bay project. I look forward to talking to Ivan next week about that. Now, those are three of my own personal top picks that I just named. They also happen to be sponsors. Uh, but, you know, things change over time, and we're going to be talking to Brian Groves in just a few minutes of Genesis Metals. Uh, this is a stock I also own. It's one that looks very, very promising to me, so I hope that you'll stick around to listen to what Brian has to say after a first commercial break. Now, one of uh, our listeners from uh, Florida, Joel, wrote uh, asking me to ask Michael why the gold shares aren't keeping up with the gold price. And um, in fact, I thought Michael would be on the show. He usually is, but he couldn't be here today. So I put this question to Michael by email. And Michael says, well, he doesn't quite agree with Joel. Now, now maybe Michael didn't look at the last two months, which is what Joel's reference point. But Michael said, uh, and let me just quote what Michael said. He said, sure, I can answer that question. But if Joel will take the time to look, he'll realize that he's wrong Miners from the Maylow up are up much more than the bullion in percentage terms. And also, compared to the bare lows of 2016, the miners are still up vastly more than the bullion. GDXJ right now is up 7.6% uh, above its reaction low in May. Gold is up 4.7%. And GDX is up 9.2%. Well, those are the numbers that Michael passed along. Of course, as I say, uh, using that reference point that Joel's using, perhaps it's a little different than that. Um, I don't know. But certainly, timing is everything. And I believe, without any doubt, that we are in a long-term bull market uh, for gold and commodities. And Michael's work is suggesting that we have, are now, we can 
confirm that we are now in a secular bear market for the T-bond, for U.S. debt instruments, sovereign debt instruments, and the dollar as well. And indeed, the dollar has been going down very dramatically of late. Um, we're seeing, uh, in terms of the equity markets, Michael's expecting, and he hasn't been right about this call yet. I mean, it's taking a long time for it to unfold. Uh, we're he's expecting a bear market in stocks. He says what we need to see is something on the S and P below 2370 uh, at the end of the uh, weekly close below 2370. Well, I looked earlier today. We were at 2431, so a little ways away from that. But Michael also believes, uh, and his work confirms, that we are in a secular bull market for gold, for the gold miners, and commodities in general. And commodities in general, he measures by the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Okay, well, let's get to on to today's show, which I've titled, Will This New Bear Market in the Dollar Trigger Hyperinflation? We're going to have John Williams with us here at uh, half past the hour, thereabouts. And John believes that we are still in a bear market. Uh, that we've never come out of a that the economy has never really actually recovered and reached its uh, its pre 2008 2009 peak uh, that we are still in a depression uh, and so how do we get to an inflation rate uh, a hyperinflation is what John is predicting in an in- environment like that well John's belief is it's all tied up with the dollar and that the dollar is going to lose its prominence as the world's reserve currency and become much less valuable. In fact, in a hyperinflation will become essentially worthless. Now, we have talked to F. William Engdahl on this show to provide some geopolitical issues that might play into John's point of view. And I think John will have some ideas along those lines as well. We want to ask him, what factors does he see that will take the dollar down and will cause uh, and lead to this hyperinflation? So, uh, John is in no disagreement with the bears that believe that we have a horrible uh, economy. Uh, in fact, he he believes it's a lot worse than anything the government's talking about. But we don't get to a hyperinflation because of excessive demand. We get there because the unit of currency that every the prices are measured in uh, becomes worthless. Uh, the yardstick, as it were, changes its size dramatically, and that's uh, that's the key. Uh, so John Williams will be with us at the uh, at about a half past the hour today, but uh, we do have to go to break now. But don't go away because coming up after the break is Brian Groves. He's a geologist and president and CEO of Genesis Metals. You know that's a company that already has quite a few ounces of gold in the ground with lots of exploration potential, uh, and that's in Quebec, a very mining friendly place. And yet the stock is selling for a mere. I don't know, it's really peanuts. Uh, I think it's around 12 cents or so in U.S. money, maybe 13 cents. But we'll be back uh, right after the break with Brian Groves uh, to learn more about Genesis Metals. Don't go away. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. 
Helson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time on the show, Brian Groves. He is the CEO and a director of Genesis Metals Corporation. Uh, Brian has got a rich history as a geologist and exploration guy in the mining industry, over 30 years of experience. He's worked in Australia and various places in Canada, and he has been involved in exploration for coal, gold, diamonds, and base metals with Amex Minerals, Noranda, and Placer Dome. So he's been working with the big boys in the past. He's now working with uh, the smaller companies and helping to find uh, wealth in the ground. Uh, since 2003, he served as chief executive officer of two TSX Venture exchange-listed companies, and the one we want to talk to him today about, of course, is Genesis uh, Metals. Thanks for joining me today, Brian. Well, Jay, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate being here. Well, it's really good to have you. I know that I know that our paths have crossed in the uh, in over the years at various times, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's uh, it's an industry that's up and down, and now I think it's heading up. So uh, I'm I'm looking for the sun to shine for some years to come, at least for a couple of years. Let's hope. Uh, yeah. I should mention before we get started here. Um, Genesis Metals trades in Toronto under the symbol GIS, and you can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol GGISF. I have 67.6 million shares out. company just recently did a financing. Uh, it's uh, selling at around $0.14 cents in U.S. money, as right before showtime gives it a market cap of around $10 million U.S., so it's truly a baby micro-cap company yet. Um, Brian, I'd like to start out by asking you, you're... Exploration property is located in the famous Abitibi Greenstone Belt in Quebec. Millions of ounces of gold have been mined there in the past. Your property is named uh, the Chevier, uh, and it's very large. I think it's something like 96 square kilometers. 
As a geologist, can you explain in terms that people, perhaps lay people can understand what it is that you see in the rocks there that give you hope for some success? Uh, Jay, the, you're correct. It's part of the Abitibi Greenstone Belt. It's it's close to a town called Shubugamu, which uh, for your listeners uh, that may have some understanding of, of Quebec, it's right at the, uh, almost at the extreme eastern end of the Abitibi Greenstone Belt. Uh, Shibugamu has been a, a quite a productive area. It's had both copper and gold production. Cumulative gold production exceeds 5 million ounces over the years. Uh, but the, the Chevrolet project attracted our attention simply firstly because of the size of the property. As you mentioned, it's, it's just under 100 square kilometers. Uh, very sizable land position within a very, very favorable deformation corridor. It has seen some, some work, but, but no economic deposits uh, have been defined uh, that have ever gone into production. But that is the opportunity because I, I think one of the adages that, uh, that have been applied to the Abitibi is that there are many projects that have been well drilled but poorly explored. And I, I think Chevrier fits into that category. Uh, there's been a history of exploration on the project going back to some some of the, the majors, the blue chip uh, mid-tier based metal producers, multi-commodity producers such as Manova, uh, and uh, others have worked on the project. Advance the project, uh, certainly in at least two key uh, target horizons. Um, but that's that. Those areas represent probably less than less than three to four percent of the total uh, mm. property area. So we still see lots of potential as a major deformation corridor. We see that the the the, the corridor is rich with gold endowment. There's multiple showings, uh, multiple grab samples, multiple trench results that indicate gold is in the system. So we, we're looking at it from a basically going right back to basics, building up an understanding of the geology, the prospectivity, and looking at targeting in terms of uh, rather than following the previous course that others have followed in terms of going back to the known resources and uh, popping a few holes in and just walking away. So hopefully that uh, summarizes the situation for you. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, you're saying there's three main areas or three areas where there have been some, I guess, some gold discovery. Uh, one of them is, uh, I think you have a 43-101 compliant resource of 300,000 ounces from the main zone, you call it, uh, grading 1.99, 1.99, I'll call it two grams per ton. And then you have a historical non-compliant resource of 540,000 ounces, grading 1.8 uh, grams per ton, of course. Are you, are you planning to do some drilling there to to bring that up to conform to the 43-101 standards? That's that's correct, Jay. And, and intriguingly, under the uh, under the current uh, requirements of forty three one hundred one, um, the report that you referred to was completed in two thousand and ten. And because it was done by a predecessor company, a uh, company you know unrelated to Genesis, it's it it even is now regarded as historic in nature, even though it is has you know the work was done under the uh, the guidance of NI forty three one hundred one. So what we're looking at now is is basically taking. Uh, the data that we have available, and we're very fortunate that uh, we, we have at least 70,000 meters of uh, drill core available mm. uh, on, on the property, and that, uh, that principally comes from the main zone and the south zone, uh, and those two areas are located roughly in the center of the project area. We've also uncovered uh, core from about 50 holes in the northeastern corner of the property that was drilled 
back in the late uh, 1980s by Falconbridge Copper, and they identified a small resource of gold as well, but it's, it's open. So our intent this year is, uh, we, like, as we move to a drill phase, and that uh, early indications here would be that we would be starting uh, around about July 1st or 2nd with a drill program. We're planning to drill new targets on the property as well as go back and uh, do the requisite amount of both infill uh, sort of step-out drilling as well as confirmation drilling in the main zone that would be necessary under 43101 to allow us to use the historic information and incorporate that into uh, potentially an updated resource. Um, and the best uh, indication I can give uh, give you and, and your listeners would be that that resource probably won't come out until um, possibly Q1 or Q2 of next year. Uh, we we have um, we have actually compiled all the data on the property, as I mentioned, uh, you know, earlier in the conversation, and that has identified at least seven or eight priority targets away from the main zone. Uh, mm. These apparently have never been drilled. We're, we've scoured the assessment files from the Quebec government. We can find little, if any, indications of drill follow-up on some of these targets. These are favorable geology with grab samples running gold. So our intent uh, with our drill program is probably to spend the bulk of the money on evaluating those new target areas and putting uh, a smaller amount of the drill allocation into the main zone uh, to allow us to, to hopefully bring the main zone in to a compliant resource early next year. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there's uh, seven or eight targets in addition to the main zone and the historical area? That's correct, yes. And we completed wow. a small IP survey in uh, mm-hmm. the winter months, and we've generated two additional IP targets, which appear never to have been drilled. One actually is very, I'm, I'm quite excited by it. It's, it's a westward extension of the, uh, the northeast zone that I mentioned, the, the zone that was drilled by Falcon Bridge Copper up in the northeastern corner of the property. And uh, it, it's intriguing. The, the main deformation corridor, which seems to host most of the gold throughout the project, is trending in a roughly northeast direction. Uh, for most of your listeners, they may be aware that m- many of the trends like the, uh, the Porcupine Dester and the Lada Lake Cadillac break uh, tend to be more east-west. What mm-hmm. we see at the northern end of the project is actually a deformation corridor that starts to trend east-west. And it would appear that uh, our north East trending zone, the, the deformation corridor seems to coalesce in the northern part of the property. So from a macro scale, this, this is obviously a very, very interesting area in which to focus. And it just so happens we have IP, untested IP targets in this area. Uh, and again, as I said, it apparent, it looks to be an apparent westward extension from the, uh, from the Falcon Bridge copper drilling area. So we are eager to get onto these new targets and, uh, and, and demonstrate that the, uh, that the potential still exists on the project discovered you know more more uh, more gold, which is I think the key for our uh, focus this year. Well, it seems to me that perhaps you're the first company to come along and look at this entire land package and look at it from a macro point of view. Um, and and really, uh, you, it seems to me that you must have an enormous number of, of of things to look at. Also, you mentioned all this drilling, seventy thousand meters. Uh, in the past, and another 50 holes or so by, was it Falcon Bridge? That, That's right. Um, so, I mean, you're probably pulling all that data together now and, and trying to, I guess, make some sense of it from a macro point of right. view. That's correct, yes. We, what we've done is actually uh, we've, we've gathered all the data 
And thankfully, because the, 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 the work was done by, you know, a solid blue chip companies such as Minerva, sure. the, uh, the, the records are in very, very good shape. So we do have, uh, we do have, um, you know, complete drill logs. We have assay databases. Uh, we've spent a lot of time, though, digitizing those data because um, some of the data sets are digital, but most, uh, most of the data are unfortunately just on paper <laughs> copies. So we're going to a lot of trouble to digitize those data. And uh, we're actually building 3D wireframe models. Uh, so oh, good. for your listeners that may be aware of that, that's really just an attempt to try and put a solid boundary around the gold mineralization. Uh, and that's being done for each of the main zone, uh, south zone, and the so-called east zone, drilled by Falconbridge. Uh, and this, you know, this is a better way of understanding what the distribution and controls and mineralization are so that we can better focus our drilling and see where the best opportunities within those mineralized shells appear to be. Um, just as a, just as an aside, the merely early interpretation from the modeling done in the main zone, it, it, it uh, first thought to be a fairly discontinuous series of high-grade, almost vertical shoots. Mm-hmm. But now um, we're looking at it from if we lower the, uh, the overall grade, that uh, the grades uh, down to about 0.3 to 0.5 grams, we start mm-hmm. to see quite promising continuity uh, with multiple sort of vein sets within the broader mm. main zone itself. So this, wow. uh, this obviously begs the question then that if we can start to see continuity, uh, what happens between those individual vein sets? And uh, we are actually in the process of going and taking several holes and actually splitting, sampling, and assaying from top to bottom to see if what was originally interpreted as, as uh, barren, barren uh, core actually may contain grade. We just don't know. Um, so, uh, you know, with a lot of... A lot of uh, sort of fairly cost-effective, simple um, activities that can be done that can actually add to the value of the project by going back to the historic core and uh, just reassessing it. So, so that's uh, that's what we've been doing uh, extensive period during the 2016 when we all we were doing was collecting historic data, collating mm-hmm. it, making sure it was clean, and then that allows us then to to maximize our drill programs when we start in July. Well, this is really exciting. So, what you're saying is there might be some potential for some real bulk mineable, a bulk mineable uh, situation here that you don't know yet. I mean, you've got a lot of work to do, but you could be looking at something potentially very, very large, very significant. I would think, and it strikes me also, Brian, that you know the numbers that you have there, um, you know, two grams. I mean, we're talking about an open pit here. We're talking about surface, aren't we? That's right. Sure. Yeah, the main zone does come to surface. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't know the geometry yet. You probably have a lot of work to do in terms of knowing how this thing is going to sit in the ground or how the mineable uh, economic target might, might – I guess there's so many things to answer yet. Uh, we always like to know as soon as possible what some fatal flaws are. You know, you look at things like one of the things you don't have to worry about too much where you are, and, and that's infrastructure. In Quebec, it looks pretty good. I mean, it's hard to say near Shibugamu that you'd have a problem. Uh, you ha- usually okay. have cheap power up there. You have good good uh, mining people. You've got good roads, access, and all that, right? Uh, but right. what about um, any metallurgy done yet, or is it just sim- simply too early? You just don't know enough it's, yet. It, it, it is it is simply too early, Jay. That's, that's correct. But what we plan to do this summer is... Uh, you know, there's really no, with, with the wealth of core that we have, historic core, we can actually do drill core composites. I've been on several projects where you can do a lot of very productive uh, preliminary metallurgical recovery work just on composite mm-hmm. drill core samples, rather than going to the trouble of drilling either large diameter holes or collecting a bulk sample. So we plan to do that this summer uh, with the, the funds that we have 
just to start to understand the, the metallurgy. Um, just, just empirically looking at the core, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of anything that uh, could be deleterious, such as uh, arsenic or pyrite or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the gold with uh, this sulfide, mainly the pyrite mineralization, seems to suggest that it, the, the, the grains aren't intertwined, which, you know, which, which is something that you don't want to see. So we, we believe it's a fairly straightforward process based on what we see in the drill core in terms of the nature of the gold. Uh, so again, as I mentioned, we'll, we'll be doing some metallurgical test work this summer to, uh, to confirm what recoveries might look like. Sure, absolutely. Uh, native issues, anything there? You, you're okay with the, with the locals? Yes, uh, we are. We're we're very fortunate. Uh, we you know we're we're very early into the project, but uh, I, I think where you and I probably first met was with a company called Spanish Mountain Gold, where mm-hmm. I actually was involved for about four or five years with uh, consultation with uh, First Nations uh, native groups and so on. Um, the Cree in northern Quebec. Uh, they're, they're very. I think they're a very pra- practical um, community, and uh, we haven't established contact uh, with the, the local community and advised them that we are will be working in the area. Um, I, I think my experience in British Columbia with Spanish Mountain Gold is, is, is actually, you know, given me a, a good, uh, shall I say, advantage in terms of. Uh, you know the the protocols and, and the, the process uh, in terms of engaging people in communications and discussions about projects, but we foresee no problems. Actually, uh, a lot of mining activity is is underway now with uh, the participation of First Nations groups. There's actually an investment fund in uh, Northern Quebec that is, um, I, I believe, has. Uh, uh, Cree uh, investment money in it, and it's specifically targeted for investments um, north of Shibugamu. So, a fairly progressive environment that we find ourselves in, and so we don't see any problems there. Yeah, I know. I'm familiar with the Cree, and they're they're successful businessmen. They're one of the few Indian tribes that I know of that have done very very well. But anyway, we're just about out of time. Maybe you can take 30 seconds. You've got another project uh, uh, in Ontario. It's called the October Project. Any going to do anything with that this year? And and then tell us how much money you have in the till and how far that will take you. Then we'll have to okay. go to break. So, so, sounds good. Uh, October Gold is uh, it's basically the it's the cornerstone project that was the formation of the predecessor company called Entourage. Um, so Entourage became Genesis when we acquired the Chevrolet project from the Toronto Junior. Um, October Gold is a very significant land position. It's 200 square kilometers. Uh, we're planning. Uh, we're not planning any major work on the project this year, Jay. It's in a very, very strategic location with majors all around us. Um, where we're just planning some basic targeting, uh, targeting summary compilation maps, much as we did for Chevrolet, just to see what the prospectivity and try to quantify the prospectivity of the project. And from that, that will help us form budgets for work probably next year, maybe Q1. Um, our treasury currently sets. Uh, conservatively around about 3.5 uh, to 3.6 million Canadian. We just closed the financing for 3.25 million um, as of Monday, and that was announced. Uh, so we are in very, very, you know, very well positioned in terms of having the financial resources to do all the work I've mentioned on Chevrolet uh, this summer, uh, with drilling anticipated to start in uh, June, early July. All right, excellent. Well, we'll have to leave a go at that, Brian. Sounds like a very exciting story. Hope to talk to you again about it sometime in the near future. Thanks very much. All right, folks. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, Brian, take care. Well, okay, folks, um, break time now, and when we come back, John Williams will be with us uh, to warn about a declining dollar and what that might mean for you. 
and for the price of gold and a lot of other things. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Williams. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, John Williams. The economist John Williams has been with us a number of times in the past. He is an independent economist. He is a, a Dartmouth grad, um, bachelor's degree in 1971, MBA from Dartmouth's uh, Amos Tuck School for Business Administration. And those were the days before we had any significant amount of grade inflation. And it was a grade inflation. Now everybody goes, so I don't know if it's still if it's true with uh, prestigious schools like Dartmouth and Harvard and Yale. I wouldn't be surprised there's some truth. But the point is that we have a lot of inflation and the, I believe that degrees aren't worth what they used to be. John went there to Dartmouth, has a degree. But what's most important about John uh, is that he has remained independent, unlike most economists who end up at the Federal Reserve and then are owned by the Federal Reserve or the government. The propaganda never stops. And thank God for people like John Williams, who has remained true to the truth, has really remained true to looking for what is actually true, as opposed to what uh, the establishment wants us 
to believe is true. The website is shadowstats.com, shadowstats.com. Thanks for joining me again, John. Uh, thanks for having me, Jay. Always good to talk to you. You are, um, you know, someone that well, I've known you for at least a couple, three decades or so now, and never get tired of of reading. I get tired. I get tired of of hearing what the government's saying all the time. Uh, and and frankly, it's like a broken record. But you have measured. You have looked at things in a way. You know, comparing apples to apples. The apples of of 1970 with the apples of 2017 and so on and so forth instead of changing the yardstick. But, John, I want to start our conversation because you are known uh, for believing that we're heading for some very serious inflation problems, indeed hyperinflation. So I'd like to start out with a question from a friend of mine named Barry Downs, and he has been a guest on our show at least once or so in the past. He is the son-in-law of the great, the late great Federal Reserve economist and Harvard professor Goldbug uh, John Exter, and John was a, a renowned deflationist, believed that the more money we print, the more we would suck ourselves into a deflation, and that certainly has seemed to play out to a great extent. But Barry wants me to ask you, given the fact that our economy is in such dire shape, and I know you believe it is, how can we get to hyperinflation when there is simply everything, excess of everything, it seems, and there's no demand pull or, or cost push or anything like that, those terminologies going on. And he points out they've printed huge amounts of money, M2 has grown dramatically, and yet it's like almost like pushing on a string. So Barry wonders, how do we get to hyperinflation in this environment, John? Well, in terms of the, uh, the, the hyperinflation, it's only a matter of time unless uh, the government's able to bring its long-term uh, uh, finances under control. Um, as things stand now, you have, uh, in terms of uh, unfunded liabilities, net present value. I mean, the cash you need in yeah. hand uh, today to cover your long-term liabilities and and uh, the, the federal debt and such in excess of $100 trillion. Ooh. There's no way that can ever be covered from normal operations so that unless you have a major overhaul of the system, and I think politically that's uh, not too likely, but it's always a, a chance, particularly with a new administration. Um, that's, that, that dooms you to not being able to pay off your debts in normal fashion. So you start printing the money to pay off the debts, which gives you the hyperinflation. And uh, Alan Greenspan was uh, very gracious in describing the circumstance there back in, I believe it was... Uh, uh, 2000, I don't know, it was 2009, 2011, when when the S and P downgraded uh, the, the government debt, mm-hmm. um, he said, "Oh, there's you know, there's there's no risk of the U.S. defaulting on its debt because all its debt's denominated in dollars. Uh, all it has to do is print the dollars." Mm-hmm. And from that standpoint, he's actually uh, he's actually right. Sure, they, they just they just print the dollars and, and you end up with the hyperinflation. Um, but the um, the, the 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 problem in recent years has been we were we were we were heading in that direction. The banking system uh, effectively collapsed. The Fed came in and began to do whatever it had to do to keep the system afloat to keep it from collapsing. It created whatever money it had to uh, create, spend, lend, uh, guarantee, um, in, in order to keep the system from uh, from collapsing. 
and uh, they were successful in keeping the system from collapsing, but they never did anything to address the underlying fundamentals that led to the crisis, such as um, addressing the economy, uh, addressing the long-term solvency issues, and uh, addressing uh, a lot of the fundamental problems with the the banking system. Here we are uh, some period later, and the... the, uh, all the central bank intervention led into quantitative easing, and when that first was was done, it looked like they were going to be uh, expanding the money supply very rapidly because they, as they were buying up uh, the treasuries and such from the banks, you saw a, a big surge in uh, uh, the monetary base, which had been their traditional tool for uh, targeting money supply growth. But they didn't let the banks lend the money that they were, the cash that they were getting into the system, which would have helped the economy. Instead, the banks had to deposit the cash they were getting back with the Fed as excess reserves. So mm-hmm. it didn't get into the system. Um, quantitative easing uh, played out. They, they bought well over, uh, with the mortgage-backed securities, I guess almost $5 trillion worth of securities, which, are, which they're still holding. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the treasuries, which are about two and a half trillion, there, um, they're, they're holding, and, and, and when they get paid interest by the uh, uh, t- treasury, they, they, they refund the interest to the to, to the treasury. Effectively, they've monetized two and a half trillion dollars worth of government debt, which should be an in, uh, inflationary. And uh, I think we're heading back into that mode of of um, of, of just rapid monetary. Debasement. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, what what you've seen recently in the last year or two, uh, actually since uh, last half of 2014, so we're going on uh, now three years, has been an extraordinarily and unfundamentally sound rally in the dollar, mm-hmm. largely tied to uh, Fed jawboning or, or or direct government uh, a- a- intervention to prop the dollar. I'll tie that back to the uh, circumstance in the Ukraine with Russia um, at the time that um, uh, Russia was uh, upsetting um, what appeared to be the expectations by the uh, Obama administration. Um, we said we wouldn't target uh, we, we wouldn't uh, t- target uh, sanctions against Russia, but we would against certain individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time that. Those individual sanctions were put in place within two to three days. Uh, the price of oil collapsed, and the dollar rallied. And I'll contend that was basically aimed at providing some financial penalty to the uh, uh, Russians for what mm-hmm. for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we went along there, the Fed did what it could to try and prop the dollar by talking uh, up how they were going to, uh, they're backing off about from the uh, quantitative easing, they're going to raise interest rates, get interest rates back to a normal level, and that went on and on and on, and, and almost, I think, almost two years before they actually raised interest rates. It's all jawboning. Yeah. So whenever they jawbone, that would help prop the dollar. Mm-hmm. And we've had a couple of uh, rounds of uh, rate increases, but again, there's an awful lot of jawboning there, and... Um, that, that, that jawboning, again, has been in support of the dollar. All of that presumes, and what the Fed is saying is, oh, you know, the economy's uh, coming back now, we can, we can raise interest rates? That's nonsense. The economy's not coming back. It never recovered um, from the um, uh, crash into uh, uh, 2000, uh, 2009. It hit bottom in 2009. 
came off its bottom a little bit, but it never got back to its pre-recession high. And if you look at the way the economies are normally uh, defined and economic growth is defined, um, in order to have economic expansion, you have to re- you have to regain the level of economic activity seen before the the, the downturn. We, we we've never done that. We have officially per the GDP, but you look at other uh, good quality uh, good quality series such as industrial production. Um, industrial production actually was up uh, in one quarters of, of expansion. Expansion comes after above the prior high, and mm-hmm. then fell down again. Manufacturing never never got to expansion, never fully recovered. Mm-hmm. And right mm-hmm. now what we're seeing with manu- the manufacturing sector is the longest period of non-expansion ever in the history of the industrial production series, which goes back 100 years. It's worse than seen in the Great Depression. It's worse than seen in the realignment of manufacturing after World War II. We've never seen anything like this in modern times. The economy is, 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 is faltering. We're beginning to see it in some of the headline numbers. Um, there's, there's a lot of gimmicking in the numbers. But the problem is that the, head, the Fed does not have a strong economy on which to um, base boosting its interest rates. And if you read their minutes, they allow for adverse um, financial circumstances, I think is the way they put it, that yeah. could uh, force them back into into expanding their portfolio, um, getting back and buying treasuries again. Yeah. The contention is you're going to see the economy, headline economy, weakening enough in the, in the months ahead that the Fed is not going to continue to tighten. I mean, maybe there's another rate hike, but I, I tend to doubt that. Um, they're going to um, uh, instead have to move back towards um, quantitative easing Mm-hmm. And expand quantitative easing again to to help the banks. The All right. Fed's well, primary well, function well, is to keep the banking system afloat. Well, let me just that. ask you, John, what, what you're saying is that we're we're continually having this weak economy, no matter how much money is being uh, printed or created and put into the system. Uh, and what Barry is suggesting is why will that change? I know that I know your answer is that the dollar is going to come under pressure. That the dollar is going to. It seems to me what you're saying is there's going to be a confidence game in the dollar. Now I'm looking right now at something I talked to you about before we came on this show. I think a week or so ago, I'm noticing that there is a huge plug number in the Treasury's numbers of something they call other 745 billion in the last two years has been an undefined source of funding for U.S. Treasuries. And I'm suggesting, and I think you and I talked about this, probably it's backdoor quantitative easing that's never gone away to keep the interest rate down because if any kind of significant increase in the interest rate is going to tank this baby really bad. Yes. And then what happens, John, then what happens if, if people finally start to understand that the emperor is wearing no clothes the confidence game is over. The con game is over, and the Fed no longer will be able to protect the banks. You'll see a currency that just evaporates, and and then in terms of the currency's value, your sl- you know your loaf of bread is going to cost hundreds of dollars, perhaps something like that. Who knows? Well, the uh, the the the, the uh, shell game they've got going with the banks, they're going to continue as long as they can. Again, the pri- their primary sure. function is to keep the banks to keep the banks floating. But the, what's going to happen as they, as they start to 
revert back to the uh, quantitative easing, which is, I think, what the markets are beginning to, beginning to set. They're right. Beginning to see some weaker numbers. Uh, all the benchmark revisions we're getting in on things such as industrial production and the trade all suggest that the economy's not been as strong as it's been. And um, where the uh, all this talk about raising rates, rates has propped the dollar, once Fed policy shifts away from raising rates, number one and number two, actually moving back towards quantitative easing, which will happen, um, then you're going to see a, a, a massive decline in the dollar, a, a, or maybe even a panic decline. But mm-hmm. as that dollar sells off sharply, um, that's going to spike near-term inflation. Mm-hmm. Where that happens, and if you look at inflation over the last couple of years, really since the crisis, um, the, the the bulk of the movement in the CPI has been tied directly to uh, the, the big volatility in gasoline prices, tied to the big volatility in uh, in, oil. in oil prices. And mm-hmm. as the dollar weakens, oil prices rise. There's an eighty percent negative correlation there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that the um, you get a panic sell off in the dollar. Guess what? You're going to see be a spike in oil prices. You're going to see a spike in gasoline prices, denominated in dollars. Uh, you're going to see a big spike in domestic inflation, headline inflation. Mm-hmm. And that's going to uh, be felt very uh, heavily by an already liquidity-strapped uh, con- consumer. And I think that's going to be provide the basis for people rethinking things and, and, and give you the base, basis from which the hyperinflation uh, will build. The long-term mm-hmm. insolvency of the U.S. Uh, guarantees it, um, and it's a matter of global confidence at this point. Um, you saw at the time of the S&P downgrade how quickly you can get a panic in the global markets. You're seeing a net dumping of uh, treasuries now. Nobody wants to hold the treasury out, outside the United States because long term they know the dollar is not, not worth anything. Um, putting all that aside right now, you do have uh, all sorts of games being uh, being being played in the markets. Mm-hmm. But the... Uh, uh, long term, you, you don't want to have your your assets in U.S. U.S. bonds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, well, look, John. Uh, you know, I'm looking at some Treasury statistics that show, for the longest time, from 1776 to 2007, uh, about 47% of the Treasuries were purchased by intergovernmental. Most of that being, in in recent years, being uh, Social Security. Uh, right. The foreigners have come in with large amounts of money, and now they're uh, 43% in the period of 2008 to 2014. 43% was foreign money. Now it's, over the last two years, negative 12%. Yep. And IG, that is uh, Treasury, that is um, uh, Social Security, is way down in part, part because of demographics and part because I, I would suggest, and you could tell me what you think, wages are way down from where they were, so I imagine there's a lot less going into Social Security, people not working, the number of people employed is down. And so we have something called 87% over the last two years from domestic sources of funding, and then the Treasury isn't clear about who that is. There's a a big chunk is mutual funds. Okay, some people put money in mutual funds, $497 billion, but there's something called $745 billion of Treasury holdings over the last two years, Treasury purchases, $745 billion, the largest category of domestic, which the Treasury simply calls other. Yeah. And I'm suggesting, I wonder, to talk to John Rubino, who's my guest next week, John thinks that that's some sort of a backdoor QE that's still coming and keeping the interest rates from rising, as you say, 
who wants to buy treasuries at 0% or 1% or 2% yeah. when the inflation rate is above that? So I'm wondering if they're not already pumping money into the system to try to keep rates from rising, knowing full well that a 4% long bond rate is going to be disastrous. Yeah. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I, I think indeed they are. And in fact, uh, part of it's very open. Because the, um, well, what they do is um, not only are they holding the treasury securities that they, they had purchased, but they're rolling them over. I mean, a lot of them come mature, and as they mature, the the um, uh, government goes out and, and replaces them. Uh-huh. Excuse me, the Federal Reserve goes out and replaces them. Right. Um, so that you, you that that end of it is there. It is, uh-huh. uh, and uh, the Fed the Fed can do anything it wants and do all sorts of things covertly as it wants. The point is, it's. Um, the system should not have been on the brink of collapse back in 2008. That's what the Fed had been put in, among other things, had been put in place for. Mm-hmm. They were not yeah. successful in preventing the crisis, and they're doing everything, as is the federal government, to prevent the system from collapsing. Anything. Cor- I mean, the, from they, correcting, they actually. AIG, from, yeah. which is the largest insurance company in the world, to keep the system from collapsing. It didn't make any difference whatever they had to spend. Um, and they, 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 you may recall when the, this was the crisis was breaking, and Congress, I think, had to put forth together something like a seven hundred, eight hundred billion dollar um, bailout package for the system. Right after Congress passed that, despite all, oh, there's a lot of argument back and forth. The next day, uh, Bernanke wrote himself a check for seven hundred billion um, in the system. The Fed can create right. the money as it wants. Yeah, and that's that's where um, that's that's what lies ahead of us. The system's not solvent. It's not stable. And it's going to go, it's going to get, the, the, the stability in the system is going to get a lot worse. And well, it's, uh, it's, once it's, you start to see the flight from the dollar, yeah. you're going to see well, a that's... lot of dumping of, of treasuries as well. Right now where the dollar has been relatively strong, although it's been weak in the last month or so. Um, if you well, have let, let me just of say, a higher John, dollar, let... it's not a good time to own bonds, good time to own U.S. stocks. But when the, when the outlook for the dollar tanks, and the fundamentals here are just absolutely miserable for the dollar. It's, right. well, it's, it's well over by 20 30% easily. Right. Um, then as the dollar turns and you start to see that basic selling or start to get a panic selling, uh, right. I would expect you're also going to see a parallel selling in, uh, in the uh, stock market and, and in the uh, bonds. Right. So it seems to me, John, it really boils down to confidence. Confidence in in the uh, let's say what is nothing less than a counterfeit system, a system that is created. It's not it's not less than the uh, mafia don printing money in his basement. Only these guys are doing it legally because they have the power of the uh, you know the guns behind them yep. uh, to force us to accept the money. And we're trying to do it globally. We don't have time. I see my engineers telling me to save a couple minutes left, but. Globally, the U.S. has used its military to push the dollar on other countries, and I think you're looking at China and Russia and some of those countries saying, "We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore." Frankly, yep. and yep. so, and they're not, and they're not buying. They're getting rid of their, setting up their own trading system now to use their own currencies, and they're shunning the dollar as much as possible for trade. They're setting up their own gold system, their own infrastructure to compete with the United States dollar, the hegemony of the dollar. If its days are limited, then I think that's that's your that's your trigger, John. And you've been calling for hyperinflation for the last few years. It hasn't happened yet, 
But it's like, when can you call for inflation? How do you know when confidence is broken? That you, If you can predict that, then I think you can predict when we go into hyperinflation. And God help us when that happens. That's all I can say. Well, I, I agree with you. And the uh, problem is I think we're getting very close to that break in confidence. Watch, the, watch number one, the economy as it continues to soften. The Fed's going to be in an impossible position, but they'll do what they have to do to save the banks. Right, they because they're there for the banks. Rates, that will uh, that'll shake the confidence in the dollar. Um, I mean, that's been the primary prop under the dollar, and major um, major dollar selling and panic dollar selling should take care of the rest. All right, we're going to have to leave it go at that, John. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for your thoughts. Always good, and people should go to shadowstats.com. Sign up for John's letter. It's not an expensive letter. It really isn't, and uh, well worth the money if you care at all about an independent view of what is going on in the economy. John Williams is the place to go to. Thanks, John, for being thank with us. Jay, that thank is you for al- having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, next week, we're going to have... Uh, Michael Bebek of RN Resources, uh, John Rubino will be my guest as well, and hopefully Michael Oliver is back, who, by the way, is predicting that we are now in a bear market for the dollar and for T-bonds and in a bull market for gold and commodities in general. Works very well with uh, John Williams' thesis. We do have to say goodbye until then. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. DynaCert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Tri-Metals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Tri-Metals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. Tri-Metals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. Tri-Metals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com.